Test, test, test. Sounds like I'm on. Praise God. Go ahead, Barb. I want to ask you a very important question this morning, and that's this. What the heck is wrong with me? Have any of you ever asked that question? Some of you are saying, you mean this week or today? What the heck is wrong with me? You know, we could put emphases on different parts of this sentence just to make it fun. What the heck is wrong with me? I like this guy's face. And then, what the heck is wrong with me? And uh, Tom Buck, I want you to know that online, this picture says underneath it, I hate bar chords. That's his face. But sometimes we just surrender to the whole question, don't we? What the heck is wrong with me? I'm talking about those times where we know we have disappointed God or the people we love, but most painful at times is when we've deeply disappointed ourselves, when we violated the core of who we pride ourselves to be. For example, if you, at your core, value that you're a person of integrity and then you realize you've been a hypocrite. Or a good biblical example is uh, the disciple Peter who prided himself on his fearless loyalty to Christ, didn't he? And yet he denied him three times and he went out and wept bitterly. This morning we're going to be talking about one of the most baffling paradoxes of the Christian life, and that is being both saint and sinner at the same time. When we have these moments, though, I want you to take heart because we're in good company. For example, David said the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This was after he slept with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's husband killed, and he's uh, reciting in Psalm 51 his repentance. He says, against thee and thee only, Lord, have I sinned. There's the Apostle Paul who said, the very good that I intend to do, he said, uh, I do the exact opposite. Aren't you glad he said that? Aren't you glad for Romans 7 uh, to help us know that we're okay even when we're fighting sin and, sin, and uh, we seem to be losing? Then there's Jesus who said, watch out for the log that's in your own eye when you try to take the splinter out of someone else's. And also there's the story of the publican and the sinner where the sinner says, Lord, be merciful to me a sinner. Let me read that to you. This is from Luke chapter 18, verse 9, starting in verse 9. And Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
but the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not just a sinner, but he said, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The Bible is continually reminding us about the perniciousness of sin, isn't it? Uh, Pernicious, I looked that word up, and one definition is, it's the harm or evil done through insidious, corrupting, or undermining of the good. The Bible's continually reminding us that sin is a constant, that we're never completely escaped in this life, as we read in uh, 1 John 1, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, Again, the scriptures are continually uh, reminding us to be on the alert in our battle against sin. But then there's these tremendous uh, counter verses about thanks be to God. I'm going to read three of them. Uh, the first one is from Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. And it says this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Romans 6, we read other great, great verses. I'm going to read 17, 20, and 22. 17 says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Aren't you glad for scriptures like these? that we've been freed from sin. Somebody once said to me, um, Jim, do you think that we are um, lovers of sin who occasionally love God, or do you think we are lovers of God who occasionally sin? Well, these verses are saying that we're lovers of God, and, but that we still are subject to occasional sin. In the first song that Jason led us in, it said, Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. 
And we're so glad that Christ came to break that bondage. And so we find ourselves in this weird place where we are, on the one hand, partakers of the divine nature, Scripture says, but on the other hand, subject to the perniciousness of sin. And you know, no matter how long you walk with the Lord, uh, this is a question that keeps on giving. What the heck is wrong with me? You know, those of you who are kind of young in the Lord, you might think that those of us who are older uh, seem to have it together in some cases. But, you know, the older you get in the Lord, it's actually the opposite where you're even more sensitive to your weaknesses and your sins. Amen? Those of you who have walked with the Lord for a long time, you get more sensitive and uh, thankfully, hopefully more humble. So how do we navigate this dual reality? Well, this morning I'd like to give you a, a way perhaps to think more deeply about sin. I'd like to warn us against three destructive responses to sin and then provide some hope and comfort in your battle as you fight the good fight. I want to especially bring this message for our younger believers, our our youth, who may never have thought deeply about a theology of sin. What, is this, what do the scriptures really say about sin and um, how to fight it? So the best book I've read recently uh, in the last few years is this book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Um, Carl Truman is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in western Pennsylvania. I was so excited when I read this book that I called Bill and I said, Bill, I have a great book for you to read. And you know what he said? Right. He said, I've already read it. And I, uh, that really bothered me, Bill. Uh, And just a moment ago, Bill was telling me that there's a, what would you call it, Bill? A more accessible, this is quite dense but um, there's a more accessible version if you're interested after you hear some of the things that he has to say. Bill and Barb actually listened to it uh, this vacation um, uh, as they were driving. But in this book, uh, the author asks this question, or he's trying to uh, flesh out an answer to this question. How is it that we as a culture have reached the point where it is normative for a person to say, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Uh, He wants to trace, he's not so much laser focused on the whole um, homosexuality, transgenderism kind of thing. He's more interested in tracing um, our philosophical and theological ideas of what it means to be a human through the centuries that have shaped us. And uh, at one point, he compares the writings of St. Augustine, um, Christianity's most influential church father uh, after the Apostle Paul. Uh, Augustine wrote about 400 A.D., so just keep that date in mind. He compares uh, 
the writings of St. Augustine with the writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote, he was a Genevan philosopher who wrote around the 1700s. Interestingly, both of these men wrote books called The Confessions. Um, and you'll see in a moment that Rousseau was trying to develop arguments as an alternative to what Augustine was saying. Uh, so Truman writes of Rousseau. First of all, here's a, I think the picture of Rousseau on the right is an actual portrait. I think the one on the left of August, Augustine is, is just one of uh, many possibilities of how he looked. But Truman writes this about Rousseau. For Rousseau, the individual is at his best, he is most truly himself as he should be, when he acts in accordance with his nature. This is the deep principle of Rousseau's understanding of authentic personhood. For Rousseau, individuals are intrinsically good until they are corrupted by the forces of society. So his philosophy could be summarized by the song from Annie Get Your Gun, Doing What Comes Naturally, or what the Bible calls every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For Rousseau, um, to be true to yourself, you needed to look inside yourself and find your inner psychological self and then in an authentic way live that out publicly. And that's a good description of the culture we live in right now, isn't it? That, uh, that, that what is valued in our culture, apart from Christianity and the Lord, is being true to your inner psychological self and living that out loud, whatever you determine is in there. Augustine, on the other hand, um, in his life, before he was converted, he was a profligate sinner. Uh, he was a womanizer. He was just uh, quite a, a hedonistic human being. But then he came to Christ, and he was very strong on the idea that sin is intrinsically in each one of us, passed down through the sin of Adam in the garden. And uh, Augustine tells a now very famous story of stealing pears from a friend's garden. Uh, and uh, 1,400 years later, Rousseau counters with a story of stealing asparagus from a friend's mother to describe the why of human uh, evil or human nature. Why are we bad sometimes? Um, and so here you have Augustine in the 400s writing about stealing pears and why he did it. And then you have Rousseau writing in a book by the same title a story about stealing asparagus and why he did it. And Rousseau says, uh, well, let me read just some, some uh, chunks of this and uh, you'll see what I'm talking about. So, in Rousseau's book, a local man named Verat persuades the young Rousseau to steal some of Verat's mother's asparagus for him so they might sell it and make some money. 
Rousseau's account of his act of theft allows him to reflect in some detail on the psychology of what he was doing, and two things stand out in his analysis. First, he says that the motivation for the crime was not greed, but, quote, only to oblige the person who was making me do it. Thus, the act was driven not by some inward impulse that was intrinsically sinful, but by a good desire that led him to perform a sinful act. He stole the asparagus to help his friend Verat. The desire was basically a good one. It was only the manner in which he fulfilled it that was morally problematic. This is important for understanding Rousseau's view of human corruption as something that is created and fostered by social conditions and not something to be considered innate. This incident with the asparagus bears obvious comparison with the precedent in Augustine's Confessions, which serves as a literary representation of Augustine's fall into sin. Augustine and a group of friends raid a neighbor's garden late one night and steal pears. These pears are neither attractive to look at nor tasty to eat. In fact, Augustine had more and better pears in his own garden. So the youths throw their ill-gotten gains to some pigs and carry on their way with much laughter. For Augustine, the theft is not the result of a good desire misdirected as it is for Rousseau, but rather the sheer sinful delight he had in breaking the law. For Augustine, the moral flaw is ultimately intrinsic to him. He is by nature wicked and a sinner. For Rousseau, by way of contrast, his natural humanity is fundamentally sound, and the sinful act comes from social pressures and conditioning. So I want to ask you a very important question, and that is, are you a pear stealer? or an asparagus stealer in your heart of hearts, metaphorically? Do you agree with Augustine, or do you agree with Rousseau? According to the Bible, there's a right answer to this question, and that is that Augustine is correct. We carry in us an intrinsic, sinful nature that can touch any part of our natures, and, um, and it's not social conditioning. Although, of course, we do, both men agree that there are times that we succumb to social pressure and, and peer pressure and that kind of thing. But bottom line, uh, we, I want to encourage you, if you haven't realized this before, to be a pear stealer, not an asparagus stealer. Be a pear picker not an asparagus thief. Oh, I wanted to mention, um, when I was in college, you'll see a picture of carrots up here. When I was in college, uh, I went to one night to spend the night with some friends at one of the elders' homes uh, at the church that we attended. This man was named uh, Mr. Gerlock, and he was a, uh, he was, in my opinion, he, he seemed like a, a stern man, a hard-working man. He had a farm, and uh, money was very tight for him, and yet he hosted us in his home, uh, and we were to go to church the next day. 
Well, he had me sleep in a sunroom, and in the sunroom was a bushel of freshly picked carrots. And I tried to go to sleep that night, but I kept looking at those carrots and wanting a carrot. And finally I succumbed, and I went over and grabbed a carrot and ate it and uh, went to sleep. Well, the next morning we get up, we go to church, it's time for communion, and guess what? Uh, Elder Gerlach is serving communion. And uh, the Holy Spirit just, I felt so guilty. I thought, I can't take communion after stealing one of his carrots unless I confess to him. And so I went down the aisle and went to him and, and apologized profusely. I said, will you forgive me for stealing a carrot last night? And, you know, I could have said to him that I was driven by hunger. But the truth is, it was just a selfish act. I was putting myself above um, him and his hard work and his personal property. So again, I want you to be a pear stealer, not an asparagus stealer. Jesus said this. Well, first of all, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? But more importantly, Jesus said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile a person. Nothing outside a person can defile them. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that defiles him. So I want you to be very clear and very sold on this point, that the locus of evil, yes, evil can be traced back to the enemy, Satan, but the locus of evil in our lives is not, you know, don't look outside for that. Yes, there are evil things, evil systems, evil governments, but the real evil is in the human heart. Do you agree with me? You agree with Jesus, I hope. The real evil is in the human heart. Sin is in each one of us, intrinsically, passed down from the sin of Adam. Dr. Charles Farah used to say that it is one's theology of man, not theology of God, that determines the success or failure of the Christian life. Isn't that interesting? If we're solid on what we're talking about this morning, you will have a successful Christian life. But if you're, you're weak on this point, um, you're headed for trouble. You might be... Um, so on the one hand, you can be like this man. He's a pear picker. I, I like his face. He looks to me like he's a man who is down to earth. He knows who he is. He knows who God is. Uh, he's at peace with himself and at peace with the Lord. Take a look at this guy on the other hand. This is an asparagus thief. This is a groundhog that actually has a name. His name is Chunk. And he's kind of a viral sensation right now because he plays to the camera. There's a, a, a gardener in Delaware who set up a, 
a game camera to see what was eating his vegetables, and it turns out to be this groundhog who he named Chunk. And Chunk plays to the camera, and you can see the sign there that talks about what? Can you read it? I can't read it from here. Can you read it? Some can't, so I'll, I'll step over here and read it. It says, Dear Plant Thief, if I catch you stealing my plants, I will boil you alive in a cauldron filled with poison ivy and stinging nettles until your flesh falls off your bones. <laughs> but I don't think Chunk is very afraid. St. Augustine went on to present something that I think is helpful. And he took salvation history and he broke it into four categories, creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation or eternity. And he said that in uh, creation that Adam was not, before the fall, Adam was not a sinner, but he was able to sin. Uh, I think in Latin that's pronounced passe pecare. Then the fall occurs and after the fall, Adam's original sin corrupted all mankind such that all men were not able to not sin. Non passe, non pecare. And in fact, we are called dead in sin. If we go back to Ephesians 2, these verses are very familiar. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. So in creation... Adam was not a sinner but able to sin and sadly he did sin and became a sinner. During, after the fall, uh, man has not been able not to sin. Uh, non passe, non pecare. Then Christ comes and the power of sin is broken. And so now we're in a state where we are able not to sin but we're also able to sin. And so that's that weird place that we find ourselves in. And then in consummation, when we are escorted to heaven and in the full presence of Christ, all things will be made new, according to Revelation 21. In that glorious day, we will not be able to sin. Non passe pecare. Now, in an article by a man named Zach Howard, who is a associate professor at, um, uh, I think it's Bethlehem, uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary, he wrote this. As a pastor, Augustine gave these categories both to situate the Christian's present fight against sin and to offer hope for future complete freedom from sin. And that's what I want to offer you this morning, is hope in your fight against sin. Whether behavioral sins or sins like selfishness, bad thoughts towards another person, hypocrisy, lust, anger, jealousy, and so on. The reason we can have hope is because Christ is transforming us from the inside out, isn't he? Aren't you glad for that? If there's one verse that we might want to memorize, it's, it's this one, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You see, it's not up to our willpower to change us. Yes, we want to cooperate with the Lord, and that's what we're going to talk about next. I'm going to give you quickly three uh, things to avoid uh, in your fight against sin, and then one, one thing to lean into. So the first one is to avoid pride in your own ability to overcome sin. Zach Howard writes that pride is a deceiver, and it can make us indifferent towards sin. It can make us uh, lose being on guard against it or minimizing it in our lives. But the Bible warns against mocking sin, saying fools mock at sin. When we think we've got it all under control, then we're really in danger, aren't we? All of a sudden, we're really in danger. Scripture says sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Let's avoid pride in our own strength and be on guard against sin always. Second wrong response is to spiral down into deep despair and hopelessness. Have any of you ever been there where you've you've been facing a repetitive sin, maybe an addictive sin, um, you've been very focused on fighting it and you lose, you lose, you lose, and uh, it's just easy to spiral down into hopelessness and say, I'll never, I'll never beat this. But I was encouraged, uh, I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago we had a we had a mission speaker who was talking about the English phrase in Scripture, cast out, ekbalo, being cast out. It was in reference to the story where the disciples tried to uh, deliver, I think it was a young boy, a demon from, a, from a, someone, and um, they couldn't do it. And so they came to the Lord and said, we, we can't do this and and Jesus said this kind comes out only by prayer and some versions say and fasting but I think the the better versions say this type comes out only by prayer Um, and he gave the visual image of a bolt that is rusted and seized on the block of an engine uh, this, this, this visual image is probably more impactful for men than for you women, but it w- was so helpful to me. He talked about putting his, his ratchet wrench on that bolt and pulling with all his might, and uh, it just won't budge. So over the course of several days, he, he would squirt it with WD-40, and then he'd go out and try again and again and again, and Sometimes in our fight against sin, it's like that. We have something that won't move, and so we just keep praying over it. We keep squirting it with WD-40, and every morning we go out and we try again to bust that thing loose, and finally one day, one glorious day, that thing comes loose. Sometimes it takes decades, doesn't it? I've had an unhealthy relationship with 
food for decades. And yet in the last five years, that, that bolt has come loose. And I'm in a much healthier place with that. I was also encouraged uh, by one of my professors at ORU who said, Jim, if you have a person who is a pathological liar, uh, an alcoholic, and an abusive spouse, and they get saved, what do you have? And I had no clue what he was getting at. But he said, you will have a... Um, you will have an honest, um, non-abusive, alcoholic Christian man. And he said, he said, when we read 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. In the King James Version, it says, all things, old things passed away, all things have become new. Well, that word all is not in the Greek. It's in your King James Version, but it's not in the Greek. A closer rendition would be, Behold, new things have come. And that made sense to me because in our, you know, my experience taught me and my own experience and with others that when we get saved, we are delivered from many things, but not everything. There are some hangers-on. Has that been your experience as well? And then... Um, I read in uh, Judges 3 uh, something similar. Way back in the Old Testament, when God was driving out the nations uh, before Israel, he said, um, I will no longer drive out before you all of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test you by them, whether you will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as your fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed some nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Um, now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel. That word test can mean to prove or to learn from. Uh, who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formally. So sometimes you might wonder, why is this sin, this persistent sin in my life, why am I having to fight this so hard? Why didn't God deliver me? Didn't he say all things become new? Well, actually, not all. He's left some things in your land to test you, to prove you, to make you stronger as you fight and to learn how to fight. In Psalm 144, David says, Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who, trans, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those are encouraging thoughts to me. Fighting sin is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Amen? And then third, don't fight sin alone, but walk in the light with a trusted friend and a fellowship of believers. Um, Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, 
but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. And that's one of the beauties of being in a fellowship like this is we know each other's weaknesses. We know each other's sinful habits. Uh, And don't you love being known, fully known, and yet still loved? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Paul said something about to know him and to make him known. And we love being fully known. Someone has said the number one antidote to addiction and sin is deep Christian friendship. Isn't that right? Deep Christian friendship. And so in conclusion, uh, excuse me, I got one more. This is not something to avoid, but something to lean into, and that is we want to trust in the grace of God and the delivering power of the Lord. I, I've talked to many of you, I'll, I'll, without naming a name, I'll say I've, one of you I know has been delivered from alcoholism, and that individual is giving God all the, all the glory, not his own strong willpower, but giving God. God just delivered him. He kept seeking God, kept fighting, and finally God delivered him. So let's lean fully into the grace of God, not trust in the strength of our willpower. All right. So as you face this question, what the heck is wrong with me? We've seen some things, haven't we? We've seen, first of all, that you're in good company when you ask this question. You're not alone. Secondly, I've encouraged you to steal pears, not asparagus. Carrots are okay too, but not asparagus. Don't be like Chunk and love to play to the cameras. And then we've seen Augustine's model of able, uh, able to sin, not able to not sin, Uh, able to sin and able not to sin, that's where we are, and then in the future, not able to sin. And then also, we've looked at four ways to win our battle against sin. Guys, may God bless you as you continue to fight the good fight. Amen. Love you.